0: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, January the 26th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Over the past few weeks, the drumbeats of war have been growing louder and louder in Eastern Europe as Vladimir Putin has amassed well over 100,000 Russian troops and associated military hardware along the border with Ukraine. Opinions differ on the likelihood of a full-blown military invasion of the sort that Europe hasn't seen since the Second World War, but the ratcheting up of the tension has caused increasing consternation in the European Union, in NATO and in Washington DC. So what is really going on and how is it likely to develop over the coming weeks and perhaps months? To discuss this I'm joined by Thomas Wright. Tom is a Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institute, which is a Washington-based foreign policy think tank. He's also the Director of Centre on the United States and Europe. He's the author of two books. One is Aftershocks, Pandemic Politics and the End of the Old International Order, which he co-wrote with Colin Cowell. And he also wrote All Measures Short of War, The Contest for the 21st Century and the Future of American Power. And I should also say he's Irish. You're very welcome, Tom.
1: Thanks, Hugh. It's great to be back on the podcast. Can I ask you,
0: first of all, I've been reading and listening to various respected analysts of Eastern European and Russian affairs over the last few days. And the thing I find most unnerving is that some of them think that this is largely performative posturing, probing by Putin. And others think that we are actually on the brink of, and I quote, the worst European security crisis in most of our lifetimes. It's the distance between those two positions that worries me the most, the sort of the unknowability.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great point. And it's it's an analytically sort of tricky, uh, tricky situation to come to a conclusion on. But I, I would sort of say that those two positions—the view that Putin's just using this as leverage, he's got his troops on the border to, send, to create a sense of crisis—he's going to do something small or try to extract something from the from NATO and the US in negotiations. That that view is actually very very close as well to the um, to the more full invasion point of view in that everything, all evidence that would point toward a full invasion is also compatible with going right to the brink and pulling back at the last moment, right? So anytime Putin does something that makes it look more likely that he's actually intent in invading, those who don't think he will invade can say, well, this is also consistent with with that point of view because um, it's a bargaining chip. Now, I think what's particularly worrisome to me, though, if you compare what he's doing this year to what he did, say, in 2014 or in other periods, is that he has built the capacity for a large-scale invasion of Ukraine. And he has also set sort of the groundwork for it rhetorically and in the policy sense, going back to the summer when he published a long article sort of explaining, you know, why he believed that Russia and Ukraine weren't really separate countries and needed to be unified. And so, this does feel different than what's happened before, and if he does pull the trigger on it, I think it will be a sharp break, not just with Europe's past, but also with his behaviour, with how he has generally engaged in crises uh, before.
0: So, the analysts who don't take this so seriously point to two things. They say that there hasn't been the preparatory work done with Russian popular opinion for a major for a major military conflict you know in terms of the media which obviously the the regime controls pretty tightly that that sort of work which you'd expect to happen in the 2 to 3 weeks in advance of an actual invasion hasn't really been visible and the other one and I'm not remotely qualified to comment on this is that the actual supply lines that would be needed for an actual conventional military invasion tanks across the border pincer movements all that kind of stuff the sort of the the support systems for that are not actually in place do you have any knowledge on that
1: Yeah, look, I'm not a military analyst, but I do, like you, you know, talk to people who study this pretty closely. And I think on the second, you know, question, um, the sort of the official view, I think, of, you know, the NATO militaries and and national security officials is that they are about 90 percent of the way there. Or certainly they were about 90 percent of the way there a couple of weeks ago. And, And certain things still, you know, arguably need to happen uh, to put in place the final, you know, pieces, but they're very close to that. On the first point, there has been very uh, a very concerted effort again going on on, on colleagues who uh, read and watch sort of Russian media covers pretty closely, and um, it has been quite anti-Western. It has been very anti-Zelensky. But you're right that the um, that there hasn't been in the last sort of seven to fourteen days a drumbeat saying that the negotiations have failed, right? So we would probably see in the run up to an actual invasion, uh, the story sort of dominating the Russian media and it focusing on the failure of the negotiations and how Vladimir Putin has no other option. So I agree that that would probably be a very short term um, metric that we should look at. Um, But that still means we're very close, you know, to that point, that those are things that could happen know, very, very quickly. I think in the broader sense, you know, they have laid the groundwork uh, in terms of why, you know, why Ukraine should be, uh, you know, brought more into the Russian orbit, you know, why uh, the the US has been uh, penalizing and marginalizing Russia and how that needs to be corrected. So I think we have seen, you know, those elements there.
0: You referred to Putin's essay earlier in the summer, and it, it essentially articulated what I think is a very, very widespread view, probably in Russia, and is also a view which is held in in some parts of Ukraine as well, which is that the two countries are inextricably linked. Their history, right back to the start to the founding of Kiev Rus, as I think it was called, um, are essentially part of the of a, they're a larger single single narrative, and we're kind of we're familiar with that story, but. The thing that strikes me about what's happened over the last few years is, if anything, it's Putin who's been pushing Ukraine away with some of his tactics over the last while. And that has contributed to the way that Ukraine has been turning more towards the West, particularly since 2014.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, before 2014, you know, the country, Ukraine was not anti-Russian. It was pretty evenly divided. There was very little support for joining NATO. The 2013-14 crisis started about an economic agreement with the EU, so not NATO at all. Um, and the annexation of Crimea, you know, the invasion of Donbass and that those sort of tensions and uh, low-level conflict that's prevailed since has pushed Ukrainian public opinion much uh, more toward the West and away from Moscow. Um, and so he has sort of brought about that situation that he wanted to avoid. Now, his answer to that seems to be, uh, to sort of double down on the coercion, right, to remedy, you know, that divergence uh, through force. Um, but it is, I think, you know, reflective of the dramatic shifts in Ukrainian public opinion because of because of Russia's actions. The other piece of it, though, um, which I think is very important and is often lost in the discussion on, you know, NATO expansion and, uh, you know, Ukraine's ties with the West, is that Ukraine regardless of sort of the the history is a sovereign, you know, country and a member of the United Nations. And it is sort of up to them, you know, to decide, you know, who they, uh, you know, who they have ties to, you know, what their course is as a sovereign, you know, country. And what Putin is doing, I think, is very much sort of challenging, you know, the fundamental principles, you know, of the UN Charter, of the right of Ukraine to exist as a sovereign country. And so I think that is the That's what uh, senior officials like the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, and others have begun to highlight, I think, in the last week. It's not just a crisis about NATO expansion. It's also a crisis really about that post-Cold War order that includes these independent sovereign countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union.
0: And clearly, Russia has a very different view on that particular subject in relation to the countries that I think it calls its its near abroad, the former the former Soviet republics. And we saw a recent a recent action in Kazakhstan that kind of relates relates to this a, a little bit as well. And we've kind of seen there is a a sort of a playbook for this, isn't it? When we look, for example, at what happened in in Georgia back in I think it was around 2008, to where um, political conflict erupts with, with the government of this other country. There are threats made for total annexation or regime change. And what ends, up, what ends up happening is a sort of de facto annexation of certain parts of the country. There are two parts of Georgia, which are still all these years later, under, under Russian control. Is that a useful model to look at in terms of what Putin is trying to achieve in Ukraine or is he aiming for something bigger?
1: I mean, it's certainly possible that he might engage in an action like that. But what he's prepared to do just by the force he's assembled is something much bigger. I mean, the forces they've assembled is really designed to smash parts of the Ukrainian army, you know, and push deep into the eastern parts of Ukraine, possibly up to the to the capital and to negotiate, you know, from from that new position and that they have, sort of established. So that would be again a fundamental break with Putin's general MO, right? He hasn't he didn't do that as bad as 2014 was, and it and it and it was, you know, very dramatic and very destabilizing. You know, it wasn't that. So I think we would be in a very different world um if he did this. And also uh, you know, to the extent that the 2014 actions uh, resulted in relatively low levels of conflict for the last five years, um, because it was sort of concentrated, you know, this could be a much bigger uh, conflagration that could drag in other countries, um, especially if uh, Russia met with more resistance than they anticipate. So, you know, I guess my view would be that we are sort of on the brink of something Uh, new and very, you know, destabilizing. And that's why we should do everything possible at this moment to avert it, you know, diplomatically, on the deterrent side, you know, politically. Um, But it's really worth uh, taking this crisis sort of seriously and and, and taking the worst case outcome seriously so we can uh, try to uh, prevent it and actually have, you know, a diplomatic solution here.
0: And what do you make of the efforts to do that so far? I read an interesting piece in the New York Times, I think, the day before yesterday, which was looking at the the kind of the media blitz campaign which had taken place, I think, particularly over the last week or 10 days, um, coming out of the United States and maybe out of the UK a bit as well, um, releasing information, some of which would be the kind of sensitive, intelligent information that wouldn't be released into the public domain, but using that to essentially to try and ventilate all the fears that are out there, the signs of danger, and to bring those to the attention of the public and I suppose that might have that that might have two different objectives. one is to tell the Russians that um, we know what you're doing and the other one is to tell the voting people voting population in the United States that uh, that this is a real serious problem. What do you make of that as a strategy?
1: yeah I, I think you're right to identify it as a deliberate sort of choice you know because up until two weeks ago, the approach had been to take it very seriously, to warn about it, but to, the volume level was more like a 4 out of 10, right? it was. It, it, we didn't see, you know, the Secretary of State making major speeches, uh, you know, U.S. diplomats engaged in the talks with Russia in a in a relatively low-key way. Um, it wasn't sort of dominating, you know, the news cycle the way it is now. And there has been a ratcheting up, and I think it's been a ratcheting up to try to... Um, you know, define the terms of the crisis and not just have it be on Putin's terms, because Putin's, you know, argument for the last sort of couple of months has been, this is all about, you know, NATO expansion and what what the US, the UK and other European countries are doing is putting the focus back, you know, on Ukraine and the threat of invasion. And I think that's to try to frame it um, in a way that would, uh, you know, that would re- wouldn't be on Putin's terms. That would be a more, um, you know, probably would be more going on the diplomatic offensive, as it were, um, to make it more difficult for him to pull the trigger, because he would be doing something that is a breach of international law and is destabilizing. So that that's been the first, you know, piece of it. I think the second piece, you know, has been to uh, outline all the steps that would be taken, not just in sanctions, but also on troop deployments and other things. Um, if he were to invade, to convince him that if he took that path, it would worsen his security environment as he perceives it. Right, so he will be uh, in a worse position after an invasion than he would have been if he chose the diplomatic path. And so I think we've seen, you know, a lot on that side too. They're unveiling things almost on a daily, you know, basis. And then the third piece, which I think is critically important is the diplomatic track. So, you know, you have this framing exercise, you have the, the deterrence piece, um, but then you also have this robust sort of diplomatic track of trying to say, look, we recognise you have some concerns here and we're willing, you know, to talk about those in a real and concrete way. And, you know, we're expecting to see the official US response uh, to the Russian proposals um, later this week, um, and so we'll see, you know, where that goes. But I would expect those to be fairly serious and fairly substantive. And I guess the overall hope, Hugh, you know, is that ultimately, if if you go big on every front, um, that maybe Putin will be dissuaded from the invasion and persuaded to go the diplomatic route, because there will be some prospect of a, you know, a substantive negotiation and discussion and, and the cost of um, the invasion won't be too high. So I think that's what they're sort of gearing up to do. And I think we'll see, you know, a lot more of that in the coming weeks.
0: Another thing that's that's unsettling about all this is, I mean, you, you mentioned negotiations there. I mean, Russia has put forward a series of demands which are broadly regarded in the west as being completely unattainable and unachievable and undesirable uh, chief amongst them being a sort of a return to the status quo ante before 1997 and the with, the effective withdrawal of nato from the countries in central and eastern europe which joined that organisation um at the end of at the end of the last century i mean that is not going to happen so what is the purpose of demanding it
1: yeah it's a i mean it's a great point and i think it's something that Made a lot of people worried because, you know, if you want a diplomatic solution, you probably shouldn't outline sort of a maximalist position and then stick to it, right? And so if they stick to that, that's a pretty negative sign in terms of where we're headed. But the purpose of the talks, I think, is to try to test some of those, you know, positions and see if there is, uh, you know, uh, areas that we could actually focus on. And I think the area that they're likely to concentrate on is this question of European security architecture and sort of the demise of that Helsinki uh, framework from the 1970s. And, uh, you know, the the demise of the Conventional Forces in Europe treaty and, you know, the INF and other sort of key elements. And to say, uh, we're actually willing to have a conversation on those um, in a, in a relatively defined period of time. Um, that would include allies as well, um but would also include Russia, obviously. Um and so that I think uh you know is actually pretty substantive. Now that is not uh beating their demands um but it is a discussion that they've wanted to have I think for some time. So um so I think if there is any uh if there is any uh, deal to be had it will probably focus on that. And then you know on Ukraine there's probably enough uh, wriggle room there in terms of previous agreements that everyone has signed up to, uh, to find some sort of, uh, you know, to find so, some sort of diplomatic outcome as well. So I actually think this is, you know, it's not that the uh, outlines of an ultimate deal are are not known to us. I think the real question is whether or not Moscow has any interest in engaging in that, or if they have their mindset, if Putin has his mindset on, um, on a more sort of, uh, you know, maximalist
0: outcome. It's very possible, of course, isn't it, is that what Putin is doing is sort of seeing how it all goes, I suppose, is a policy, and we've seen this before, um, of, you know, observing weaknesses, um, pressing on pressure points, seeing what happens, looking to take advantage of contingent moments. And, I mean, we do know that after four years of Donald Trump and uh, a new administration, which has articulated that its main concern is looking towards um, towards China, um, a new leader in Germany after after many years, um, divisions perhaps between some of the European NATO countries, and also you know damage in the NATO relationship itself created during the Trump years, not perhaps being fully mended. I mean, perhaps just all those things are are opportunities to to test the metal of the West.
1: Yeah, I no, I think there's a lot of that there, uh, for sure. But I think for Putin, it really is, you know, about Ukraine. So I think it's a little less about trying to test us. I mean, I think he's definitely, you know, testing us with this. But I think the motivation, you know, is his belief that Ukraine is gravitating toward the West, not necessarily all about NATO at all, um, because I think NATO is just one uh, uh, relatively modest piece of that. Um, But he wants to sort of stop that development, you know, from happening. And I think he fears that it's getting out of his grip. And I suspect there's something uh, of his own age coming in here, too. You know, he's been in power for 20 years. Um, I think he's 69 or 70 years old. Uh, This would be the moment for him, you know, to act. Like, why not now is really the question, I think, as opposed to, you know, why now? And he probably sees a relatively favourable balance of forces. I I think he will have been surprised by the unity um, amongst um, uh, the sort of democratic countries in the West. And so that's probably given him some second thought. And I think we'll see if he gets off balance as this crisis sort of evolves in terms of the steps that we were talking about, you know, a moment ago. Um, And that might sort of persuade him uh, to, you know, to, to be more incrementalist, but I'm just struck really on this whole, um, it, over this past six months, by how different it feels to what he's done before, uh, mainly because of the force that he has, you know, assembled, and because of that sort of maximalist position, you know, that they've staked out. You know, they're not trying to have any deniability here. We're not talking about little green men, you know, anymore. Most of the scenarios for a conflict entail large air campaign at the beginning, uh, you know, and then a then a formal invasion. So I think it is different, but that may mean that he has, you know, second thoughts about it. And so our job, I think, you know, those of us who are sort of concerned about it is to try to provide those off-ramps, but also exacerbate his own, you know, concerns about uh, about a military solution. And so that seen as high cost, and the diplomatic track is seen as something worth embarking on.
0: There is a tendency in the Western and in Western media, to see Putin as some sort of evil genius, uh, some brilliant Machiavellian figure, and you know he's he's shown a bit of that in some cases over the over the years of his regime. But and I was talking to another expert on on Russian affairs who was pointing out, as you've said as well, that he's been in power for twenty one years now. He's essentially surrounded by the same people of the same generation as he was when he came to power, and that interestingly, he's been very much locked away over the last couple of years. He he seems, for, for whatever reason, perhaps he has an underlying health condition, particularly worried about COVID, and for that reason, he's been kind of cooped up. Is it possible that he's just m- misread where the world is now? Because that would be possibly more dangerous than anything else.
1: I mean, it's, that's very, very possible. Um, I mean, it's both true of him and also of Xi Jinping in terms of them being relatively isolated um, from uh, a wide and diverse set of information sources. You know, they rely on a very small number of people, even inside their own governments. It's hard uh, to sort of engage with them. And, you know, they have very sort of defined and fixed sort of views. And I think when it comes to Ukraine, Putin has a very particularly strong view. It it, it occupies sort of a very special or unique position Uh, place for him in terms of his, you know, worldview. So uh, I think there is a risk that he would misread it. And I think that's why, again, you know, we're seeing these efforts to try to pull back the veil a bit on what would happen. So if he thinks there would be a lack of unity and, you know, Germany wouldn't come on board for tough sanctions and the West would be divided, uh, you know, the the Western leaders are trying to construct a, a sort of unified front to disabuse him of that notion um but yes i i absolutely agree i think miscalculation you know here could be you know one of the causes of conflict
0: i know you you spoke earlier about ukraine being a sovereign nation with the right to make its own foreign policy and indeed its own treaties and uh, and alliances but is it not a week at least worth considering that in a situation like this given the history and the geographical positions of these of these countries that? The sort of neutrality which was negotiated during the Cold War for a country like Austria, or the neutral position which was maintained by Finland throughout the Cold War, um, that some version of that might be a reasonable way to come to an accommodation I would protect Ukraine to some extent because it should also presumably include some assertion of Ukrainian sovereignty against Russian aggression as much as anything else. And you know when i look at this sometimes you know the the monroe doctrine and uh established by the united states which really gave it control over what sort of governments it was going to approve of in the entire western hemisphere i mean that still applies effectively and i can't imagine for example mexico entering into a military alliance with china without uh something happening there is the same not true to some extent is there not do we not have to take account of the realities of these of these great powers and their orbits
1: yeah so I- I'm not sure if Finland, the Finland model will be enough for Putin. You know, I mean, if you look at what happened in Finland in the Cold War, obviously they fought a war against the Soviet Union. You know, they were heavily sort of armed, you know, pushed back very hard. You know, they were cautious in terms of their engagements with, with Moscow and, and a little bit deferential, but they did um, also have pretty close ties um, to the West. And we, we know where they are today. I think for Putin... It, it's less about uh, the NATO alliance piece, although obviously I think that's a significant concern to them. I think the main driver, though, is that they are effectively losing Ukraine. You know that Ukraine is looking westward and wants to engage economically, you know, politically, culturally, diplomatically uh, with the West, and and sort of you know be very suspicious and uh, worried about Russia and. In a in a Finland model, that would sort of remain in place, right? So, uh, I'm not sure that it would be would be enough, and I think Putin probably feels that he has, you know, control within his grasp, um, and and he has, I think, a very um, a very low opinion of Ukrainian political elites, and uh, you know, when he again coming from the intelligence mindset, he probably believes that he, you know, with a certain uh, military backup, would be able to control that politically. So, um, you know, the Finland model is interesting, but I think it's not, you know, it's not necessarily meeting those concerns. On the, on the spirits of influence question, which I think is a really, you know, important question, um, you know, the US has disavowed, of course, the Monroe Doctrine, but you're completely right that, you know, it did operate before. We saw uh, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of unsavory actions there during the Cold War. And I think that there's, uh, there's definitely not consistency on this point, you know, historically. But as we look at the world, you know, today, um, those countries that want to be part of, you know, the EU or NATO or have a closer tie to the US and um, do so because that's what they sort of choose, you know, to do. Whereas, you know, it's, it's a, there was a Norwegian diplomatic historian during the Cold War, Geir Lundestad, who called this an empire by invitation. Right. So countries chose to sort of sign up um, to uh, to you know to the Western sort of model, whereas in the in the Soviet model, obviously they were brought in through coercion. So I think that is a qualitative you know difference here. But I, I think the question, really for for the world and not just for the major powers, is is that the type of world that we want? I mean, do we want a world where we negotiate sort of spheres of influence where larger powers? to have an effective veto over whatever smaller countries you know do or do we try to preserve uh, this sort of rule of law and imperfect as it is you know the 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 type of world we have where there's over 190 different sovereign countries um, so i think that's a big sort of question facing us but but i definitely agree that we're you know we are in a world now where that those ideas are being are being challenged
0: and as i said at the outset i mean the, the, these are issues that you've written out in, about in 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 some books and you know the i mean the shorthand of this i suppose isn't it is that the bipolar world of the cold war ended in in 1990 we then had a single um great power um the united states for two decades or or so or thereabouts but the rise of china has has changed that equation and has had an impact in the way lots of different countries behave and and interact and and I wonder how we should we should look at this particular problem this Russia Ukraine problem within the context of that of that new bipolar world does does Russia actually have dreams of it being a tripolar world it seems to me it just doesn't have the economic power to sustain that
1: i think putin definitely wants to be a player you know, he wants to be in the game. He wants to be in the mix. Uh, He likes being part of the problem or he likes creating problems because that means he has to be at the table. Um, He wasn't a fan of, you know, Biden's sort of approach of stable and predictable, which was basically, you know, trying to ignore Russia and focus on China, or as he saw it, um, because he wanted to be very much, you know, in the conversation. Um, I think he personally, is committed to the relationship with China. You know, there's a lot of talk about Russia's long-term interests and China as a rival to Russia. But for Putin, I think he sort of made his peace with that because he, you know, believes that China and Russia face this common threat from uh, from the West, which is not necessarily military a military threat, but is, you know, a threat of color revolutions and of classical liberalism, you know, that undermines their regimes. And he believes that Beijing and Moscow have common cause and pushing back against that and I think that's what we've seen since Putin you know came back to the presidency in two thousand and eleven so um so I think for him uh it, it is about a multipolar world um but it's it's not necessarily that he that he sees Russia as sort of a tripolar power alongside the United States and China I think he sees it a bit more in um, in ideological terms, actually, in terms of the regime type and, and making the world safe for authoritarianism. The other point though, Hugh, that I think is, is sometimes missed is that, you know, to me he's a little bit more reminiscent of someone like Bismarck, you know, than he is of sort of the twentieth century dictators, and that, you know, I think his ambitions, you know, are fairly defined. They're they're quite big, um, but they also have limits to them right in that he wants to uh if not restore the soviet union i don't think you know that that might be an overly simplistic way of putting it but he definitely wants to um restore uh russia's influence back to the way it was you know before and he sees reversing you know the collapse of the soviet union and the collapse of russian power in particular as sort of key um foreign policy objective for him and so i think we're seeing him you know, now 21 years in, as you put it, uh, really focused on that um, task. And so that, that creates big, you know, problems for us. Obviously, it's not just Ukraine, the Baltics, you know, obviously are part of the EU and NATO. And there's a larger sort of question of, of international order there as well. But I think that's, you know, that's how we're seeing it playing out. And I think the, the final point is that he also believes perhaps that as, you know, the US focuses more on China Maybe that provides him with an opportunity, right, because he can present the U.S. with dilemmas about whether or not, you know, the U.S. should refocus in Europe and and possibly be distracted from China or double down in China and actually reduce its commitment to Europe. And so he may be trying to exploit, exploit that tension to some degree. And
0: speaking from Washington, where does the United States and its current domestic political situation fit? into that it seems to me that the united states is in a phase of of reducing or withdrawing from this not particularly popular role of the world's policeman whatever you may may think of that phrase yeah it's not it's likely that the democrats will lose their majorities in both houses at the midterms later this year it's certainly possible that we might even see donald trump back in the white house in two and a half years time the Biden administration seems not in great shape right now. Um, does that is 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 the, is the United States in a good place to operate its coherent role in relation to all those things which are uh, which which you are describing there? Because from the outside, it doesn't necessarily look like it.
1: Yeah, I, look, I agree. I think um, I agree to, to this extent that I think there is a lot of partisanship, um, a lot of division. Um, you know, if you look back to something like nine eleven, which did for a while before Iraq sort of unified the country to some extent, it's very hard to imagine that happening now. Um, so I think there are real uh, problems that everyone is aware of. And I think, you know, Biden has made that a big piece of his presidency as well, about restoring American democracy at home. But all that said, I actually think, you know, it hasn't really undermined their policy on this crisis, you know, um, they were very early to sort of warn of this buildup. And um, they, they went and talk to European allies and partners at a very early stage, convinced them of the credibility of the information that they have, and have really been, you know, quite focused on this, you know, over the last, you know, three months, and I think have managed to build up a fairly sort of unified position. And, um, you know, we, there are definitely some uh, differences there, and we're seeing some of those, you know, play out, you know, at the moment over particular types of sanctions on the SWIFT financial system, you know, or something else. But for the most part, I think, you know, we have seen a, a fairly traditional response uh, in, in terms of, a, you know, an, a unified allied response to to this, um, you know, to this scenario. So uh, I'm not sure it has really, I, I guess I do accept that, you know, there are huge problems domestically, but I think it hasn't really uh, undermined the, the, the position uh, yet.
0: And then within Europe itself, I mean, it was quite striking at the outset of this that Putin, I think, almost deliberately, insultingly, just wanted to deal with the United States. Uh, that Those are the main players in this game. Europe, in the form of Emmanuel Macron, um, following a very long French tradition, is attempting to re- reassert or assert... Uh, an actual, some actual agency in this process. And I gather there are some talks due about arising out of the Minsk Accords, uh, which were signed back about seven or eight years ago, but which have not really been acted on, which are a possible process to, to ameliorate some of some of these difficulties. Europe does seem fragmented or even divided. The French approach and the German approach seem deeply different, don't they?
1: Yeah, I think you're right about Putin. I mean, he's very dismissive of Europe in this, um, and he sees it really as a great power um, contest and negotiation directed to the United States. But what's interesting is that, you know, the US has rejected that uh, framework and has actually insisted on Europe being a key part of the negotiations and has invested a huge amount of time and energy in proper and full sort of consultations with, with Europe as well, as well as sort of including them in key aspects of the negotiations. And if there is a diplomatic response to the Russian position later this week, you know, it will be a, a NATO response, right? It's not just a, a Washington response. So um, I think there is a, um, that dynamic is definitely there on the Russian side, um, but there's been a real conservative effort uh, by the U.S. to to correct it, and and not just in the individual European countries, but to to bring the EU in as an actor as well. I, I think there is broad support in Washington for um, the principle that Macron uh, outlined. You know that the EU should have a more coherent and you know cohesive approach on this. I think the concern that was expressed was whether or not raising that at that particular moment. Um, you know, could sort of give Moscow the interpretation that there was any divergence there because it was already pretty close consultation. But uh, for many of us, you know, a strong EU position on foreign policy questions is is totally compatible, you know, with the strong transatlantic alliance and is actually a key, uh, a key piece of it. Um, in terms of Germany, which gets a lot of, has had a lot of attention recently, um, you know, I, I, my own view is that if, if an invasion or a, if the crisis sort of erupts into conflict, um, I, I think there will be a lot of unity uh, after after the fact. You know, I think we're seeing a, a, a pretty vibrant debate. It's a new government, uh, you know, it's a particular sort of moment in, in, in German post-war history. I think we're seeing a lot of discussions and um, that's, you know, very good. It's open. Um, but I do think if there is an invasion, there will be support for tough sanctions and the German government has you know sort of made that commitment uh, fairly publicly as well um so um so I wouldn't be too concerned about it, but I, I, you know obviously there are, there are particular instances including you know the naval chiefs comments last week or you know different reports about uh, whether or not they're fully aboard of sanctions that I think are obviously getting a lot of attention
0: finally Tom, is there in your understanding, is there a sort of a stopwatch Ticking on this, could this go on for for months yet or does it need to de-escalate both through the the kind of possible talks you, you 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 mentioned earlier or perhaps just because they can't keep the troops and the surrounding countries in this state of kind of high alert and nervousness for that long that something has to happen, a de-escalation or an escalation?
1: Yeah, again, you know, I've got... Had- Sort of probably in a position to provide sort of an independent logistical analysis. You know, everyone has their theories on on the the state of the the ground for an invasion and whether or not it could happen past March. And you know, we've all heard those different uh, those different views. Uh, it's also true that military history is full of examples of militaries doing things that were hitherto presumed to be impossible. Right. So, um, so. know, it could drag on. But my sense of it is is that it is a fairly compressed, you know, time frame. So I think the next six weeks, um, you know, well, maybe the next two months um, in in February and March are sort of the key moments. And if we can get on a diplomatic track that lasts beyond that, I think we're in a pretty good um, position. Um, But if we see a fairly strong Russian rejection of uh, not just the US proposals and NATO proposals this week, but also dismissing them as sort of unserious and not even in the ballpark, then I think we might see the clock um sort of ticking um on 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 a on a further escalation. Um there are lots of little things in play, you know, uh Putin's meant to be in Beijing for the Winter Olympics. So presumably it would happen after, you know, that visit, possibly after the Olympics Um, So there's a lot of confusion about exactly when the date will be. Um, But I do think that sort of moment of maximum sort of risk is in the short uh, term, which is why I think we're seeing a lot of the, you know, a lot of the diplomatic and political efforts really ramp up at the moment.
0: Tom Wright, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Hugh, thank you so much. That's it for today. Thanks very much to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. And remember, you can contact us with any views or questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, goodbye, and thanks very much indeed for listening.